that's where we're headed. Uh, the question that's put to us for this week was, how do we be civil in the church and society when we disagree? And in our culture today, I found uh, you start making a list of those things where you might find uh, disagreement with the culture's position and, and or society's position, or you might even include in that idea society the legal position, and we'll find that we have a number of disagreements. Okay, how are we to respond to that? How are we to uh, act that in in reference to that? in a civil format. And civil here, you know, civil can be a reference to government, but in this case it's, it's a reference to the idea of being polite, being tolerant, and being at peace with people. To be civil is, is the idea of a calm response. And uh, so how do, you know, so when, when society and church disagree... When the law of the land and the church disagree, how do we remain with a civil attitude towards it? But at the same point, are we called to do something? Are we called to say something? Are we called to respond? And now you can see why the scripture that was read this morning out of Acts chapter 4, where Peter and John are told, okay, you've done this, this deed and you're preaching the gospel and you're preaching Jesus Christ, you're preaching all of this, and we've told you to stop. And what was their response was, well, you know, we can't speak the way you're thinking about it, but for us, we must do what God has told us to do. And we'll take more, a closer look at that in a minute. So, for me, as I was going through this idea, again, you know, when we disagree with our culture or our society, how do we respond to that? How tolerant are we to be? Um... Over the last few weeks, we've looked at a number of, of issues that our society has become very su- tolerant or even pro-supportive of, and we talked about the issue of abortion. Our culture and our society is, is taking a position of, of pro-abortion, not pro-life, and looking at that, and, and as I was looking at that, I was, I, as I was going through part of this, um, I was thinking about the commercial that comes on television uh, about that, that's put out by the animal uh, people, uh, uh, Society for Prevention for Cruelty on Animals. And, and uh, they have this thing about the, the, these poor little animals and, and, and their mistreatment and all this stuff. And I thought it was a very compassionate thing. And I agree with what they're saying. It is wrong to take a dog and just pin it up in the heat and not give it water and to ignore it and this type of thing. And they're talking about all the animals they rescue and the help that they need. But what about the, 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 the lives of the, of, of the unborn? There's no way to rescue them because they're gone. And, and so we, uh, we look at this and we realize this is going to be one of these things that as... as we are judged as a nation that's going to, is, is going to be harsh against us. But we've talked about the abortion issue. I'm not going to go into great detail about it now. Uh, we talked about sexuality and gender issues, having to deal with homosexuality, having to do with the, the, the various movements about 
gender issues, uh, transvestites, uh, uh, this type of thing, and, and how are we to respond to that? I can remember when they were changing some of the city laws in the city of, of, of San Jose while I was there in the, in the 70s. And there was great debate going on as to why are, you know, you know, having to give special rights to special groups and all of this type of thing. And the realization was, you know, how do we deal, again, from the church's point of view, about these issues? Marriage in general. Our culture has a completely different view of marriage than the biblical picture. And I, you notice I was careful as how I said that. I didn't, say, I didn't say the church's picture because there's a lot of churches that have a distorted view. The biblical view is, is that marriage is to be between a man and a woman coming together, the two becoming one, and representing a picture of Christ and his church. And, you know, and that's from a biblical point of view, okay? And today, marriage is looked at as, as something that can be entered into and easily discarded. To my own embarrassment a little bit, I, I say that when I got married, my family wasn't real supportive because of, of the time that I was getting married, still in college and other things that were going on. But they, the, the last thing they said to me on the day that I was, my wedding, when I was going in to get, I needed to go get a new tie. And uh, my, my uh, mom said, you know, and if it doesn't work, you can always get a divorce. Kathy and I had already determined, even though we were non-Christians, that wasn't an option in our lives. And the irony of that was is that my mom was married and divorced. And remarried. So to her, that was her attitude. Now that's back in the in, in the late '60s and early '70s, you know. And it's gotten worse. Marriage is just something that can be discarded if it doesn't work. So what? But from a biblical point of view, how tolerant are we to be about it? How quiet as a church are we to be about these things? Message this last week on pornography. Talk about something that in my lifetime has radically changed in the sense of what is called pornography. When I was, I can remember being in, in, in junior high and high school and, and uh, the, the, the girly mags that were coming out were getting a little bit risque and uh, there was great cultural arguments and, and, and things about it. And what came down to was first right amendment, free speech. Okay, again, by the time we get to the place where we are now, anything goes. And, and, and that includes television and, and walking out the, the, through the checkouts down in the, in the supermarket and, all, and, and just about anywhere. And so what we've seen is a continual decline from a biblical perspective, within the framework of our culture and our, and, our, and our society. So there's a number of things that we are in disagreement about within the framework of our culture from a Christian, from a church perspective. So the question comes back, how are we to respond to that? Uh, 
I'm going to start by looking at, at, at a, a situation that was being put to Jesus to try to put him down. Uh, but what he said initially, so this will be kind of like a groundwork to, to build on. In Matthew chapter 22, starting with the 15th verse, we read, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, Jesus, in his words. In other words, this idea to entangle is to, is to trap, kind of an entrapment. Put him in a position where no matter what he says, he loses ground. Now, the Pharisees were great debaters. They would stand at the gate, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the different groups, would stand at the gates of the, of the cities and, and they would debate through the day. How many of you are familiar with, if I were a rich man, uh, that song from Fiddler on the Roof, and he, he says, you know, I could stand by the gate and talk about the, the, the Scripture, you know. That, that was something that the, that the rabbis would do. And, and, and the different groups would do. And they, come. and they would debate all day long about what the greatest commandment was, what the, the, the worst commandment was you know, that you could possibly do, all of these different things. And they would argue all day long and then walk away and then come back and start all over again with the same arguments again the next day. And it never was to resolve anything. It was just to, to expound on your point. And so what you turned out with is that you had a number of groups that had a number of opinions about specific things. And if you were a part of that group, you held those opinions. If you're part of this group, you held those opinions. And the idea was to pit Jesus out into such a way that no matter how he answered, he would answer against some group and lose their support or lose, have them angry at him. To get him tripped up, mixed, you know, entangled in this. And so this is the goal that they had. And so again, it says, the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him. Notice what they did, though. They sent their students. They didn't go themselves. I find that amusing. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, who are the Herodians? You know, the Pharisees were strict legalists. They believed in angels. They believed in a resurrection. They believed in a heaven. Okay, they were they were you know they were really legalistic about everything. If you didn't wash in a particular way, if you didn't walk in a particular way, if you didn't wear your clothes in a particular way, the question was whether you were clean or not enough to go to worship. Okay, the Sadducees they didn't believe in a hereafter. That's why they were sad. You see. And uh, uh, somebody else knows the kids' songs. <laughs> and the Pharisees weren't Pharisees. They weren't fair, you see. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, you know, we, we get into this. And, and, and so the Sadducees and the Pharisees made up most of the, 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 the political clout. But there was a group called the Herodians. Now, where do you think the name Herodian comes from? Herod. Okay. What that means was that they were pro-Herod. They were supportive of Herod. Now, that doesn't mean that they necessarily liked him personally. But they were pro-Herod because they were pro-Rome. 
they had no problems with Roman occupation of their country. And so they were supportive of that. And so uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not. And so they, they sent the Herodians along with their disciples to, to confront Jesus. And the irony of this is the Pharisees would have nothing to do with the Herodians at any other time other than to argue at the gate. They weren't friendly towards each other. They had totally different... The Pharisees were totally anti-Rome in every way. The, the shields that the Roman soldiers would carry that had an emblem of, of Caesar or an emblem of Rome on it, they considered blasphemous within the city of, of, of Jerusalem. And so, you know, had no room for them. The Herodians, everything was cool. Isn't it interesting who people will link their arms together with when they are looking to find, uh, when they have a common enemy over here and they, they say, I would never talk to you, have anything to do with you, or eat with you, or sit down with you over here, but we'll link arms over here. But you noticed again, and this is part of the reason I think it was this way, the Pharisees themselves didn't go. Their students went. That's interesting. They sent their students to go with the Herodians to confront Jesus. And so they said, Teacher, speaking to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Yeah, they were playing out the, the, the flattery. They looked at this and they said, teacher, which means instructor. And by the way, this, was a, this wasn't the word rabbi, but it was a, a word for honor, of honor and, and place. Instructor, competent teacher, one who is, especially from a Jewish point of view, competent to, to teach the Bible and, and, and the ways and to, and to speak about theology. So they're really putting him up here. They're, they're coming along and really flattering him. And so, teacher, and he, and he says, you're not, you're not easily swayed by other people. By this time, Jesus' ministry was well known, he'd, and he's been very consistent through his thing. He hasn't varied in his, what he's preaching. He's been teaching consistently everything that is from the Sermon on the Mount since. And, and so they're saying, you're not easily swayed. You're, you know, you get into a group of people, you don't come along and say, okay, well, this people, group of people, they, they think this way, so this is what I'll say to them. In other words, Jesus didn't play politics. He just spoke the Word of God. He spoke the truth of God. He spoke the Gospel the hope of God. So they, they complimented him. They said, Teacher, you don't, you don't give in to any of this stuff. So tell us, verse 17, tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now the tax they were talking about was a particular tax that required them to pay with a drachma. Drachma was a Roman coin. Guess whose picture is on the Roman coin? Caesar. 
Okay. Sadducees, again, were affront, took it as an affront for Roman currency to be exchanged in, in, at any way, in any place within the framework of, the, of, of Jerusalem. And for that matter, they, they, they took it as an affront anywhere in, the, in, in, the, in Israel at all, but especially the, the Jerusalem. Yet, they would, interestingly enough, deal with it in money exchanging as bankers. Tell us, is it okay to pay the taxes to Caesar? But Jesus, aware of their malice, by the way, the word malice here is for that idea of of evil intent or wickedness. They they have not just an ulterior motive, they have an evil motive. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to test, you hypocrites? Why put me to test, you hypocrites? What were they hypocrites about? Well, first off, just what they called him, teacher, trying to compliment him when they didn't care for him. The fact that they were approaching him, he knew their hearts with malice to tear him down, and yet they started out by building him up. You hypocrites. You're two-faced. Your motive is, is you're not expressing your true, sincere motives. You're coming at this with, with wicked intent. Why put me to the test? But Jesus, you can see here, is, is he's saying, okay, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar that the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they had to pay this particular tax, they had to pay it with a, a Roman coin. When they paid their temple tax, they had to pay with it what? A temple coin that was, and so they're saying, what's been designed to give to Caesar, give to Caesar. What's been designed to give to God, give to God. And, and, he, and he makes it very clear. Therefore, render to Caesar. The idea of render is, is to give what you owe. Give what you owe to Caesar and to God, give what you owe the things that are God. When they heard it, they marveled. The word marveled here is they were in wonder. They were in awe. They, they, just, they, they didn't expect an answer that was like that. They expected that they were going to divide him on the spot and, and cause difficulty for him. And instead, he gives them an answer that makes sense. They marveled and they left him and went away. Now this isn't the first this is just the first of a series of questions that are going to be asked of Jesus. They're all trying to put him on the spot. The next group of questions will come from the Sadducees speaking about the resurrection, which is an irony and a hypocrisy because they what? Don't believe in the resurrection. 
And then they're going to be asked, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And after they were done asking these questions, this is the last time they put him in a, in a debate match. They were done. Because these were the questions that they would argue day in and day out and never come up with a final answer to. And Jesus gave them very direct, clear, and answers that made sense. They marveled. What we have here is Jesus saying there are requirements made by the Roman government of us and because they are the ones in charge, we fulfill those requirements. And he... He makes it clear that there, there's, there's, there's things that we are to do to fulfill our obligations with God as well, and we need to be doing those. And by the way, because of some of the other teachings, it becomes clear that those were the ones, if any, the Pharisees were guilty and the Sadducees were guilty of ignoring. We'll get to the, when you get to the woes and, and you know, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, and, and the things that they weren't doing that they should have been doing. You're so busy just scratching the surface and you're ignoring the things that have got deep meaning. The reason why I wanted to start there was just to, to acknowledge that Jesus had something to say in reference to how we are to respond. And that was... If your taxes are owed, your taxes are owed. You need to pay the taxes. And uh, Paul puts it succinctly in Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for you for your good. But if you do not do if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, and respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. This is coming from Paul. The book of Romans was written around 56, 57 A.D. If you follow Paul's life, you'll find that he's already been arrested and thrown in jail 
how did, how, do, how did we rationalize this? Paul was obviously expressing some form of civil disobedience in the sense that he was doing something that the, the law of the land where he was at, in this case Philippi, uh, was not acceptable. He was told to stop preaching. And he didn't. We put this into a context a, a little more. We find that uh, the marks of a true Christian, if you include chapter 12, uh, you know, he talks about let love be genuine, abhor, abhor what is evil. And he goes through the define, defining the things that uh, are Christian. He says, bless those, and he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. How opposite that is of the way we think, isn't it? Even as Christians. We don't agree with a politician and we're, and we're implied, inclined to, um, if nothing less than think poorly, you know, you know do we remember to pray? We're told to. And I, over the years, I've seen it done against Republicans and Democrats, both within the framework of the church. People, if that, was, if that was my president, I wouldn't stand up when he came in the room. Paul would be offended. I believe Christ is offended. We look around and we, we judge government because we have a set of ideals, especially in our culture, that brings us a tremendous amount of freedom that most cultures don't have. But the reality is, is you look at the culture that Paul was speaking to, Rome. You know who the emperor of Rome was when he wrote this? Nero. Fiddled while Rome burned? No offense. I looked at Rebecca. <laughs> the, the picture that Paul is drawing for us here is, is the reality is, is that I think the same thing that Jesus was saying. As much, and Paul, Paul puts it clearly. He says, as much as is possible. Listen, verse 18 of, of chapter 12 of Romans. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As much as it's up to you, live at peace. But just before that, he says there, there, there are going to be those who persecute you. They may not let you live at peace. Jesus said that the fact we were going to be persecuted and that it was going to happen in this world. And he says, you're in the world, but not of it. But while you're in this world, because they've hated me, they're going to hate you. And yet we're told, pay the taxes, even to an occupying government. <laughs> pay what's owed, revenue, etc., Paul says. And with all of this, that as much as it is possible, be at peace. The reason why I set all this up was to make sure that we understand the Scripture is, is not give us license as Christians 
to be in a sense of civil disobedience uncontrolled and, and out of control to the point where you say, well, we don't have to abide by those laws. They're not from the Bible. Inasmuch as a law doesn't confront your conscience, and we'll look at that to finish this up this morning, within the walk of your faith, you are obliged to abide by it. Now, I know some people that actually take this even to the freeway. They conscientiously look at the speed limit and say, that applies to me. And they'll even go as far as to set their, their speedometer a couple of miles under their, their speed, cruise control, a couple of miles under the speed limit so that they're staying well within the law. Some people will say, well, that's still silly. No. No, even our, that's part of our witness. Am I guilty? Yes, I have been guilty. So yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stand here as a as in impurity with you. But the idea is is that we are to take this idea of being obedient in as much as it is possible and as much as it is not in conflict with our Christianity to be at peace with the the law of the land in every way. With taxes, do I like the fact that my taxes go and support certain things in public education? No. But look at some of the stuff it supported at the time of Nero. Jesus said, no, pay your denarius. What I really wanted to focus on this morning was what I started reading in the Scripture this morning out of Acts chapter 4. And... uh, as we, and and as, we, as you maybe turn to Acts 4 and 5, that's where I'm going, I, I want to look at this other thought as we're getting there. I look at what Paul went through. He can turn and write, as much as it's up to you, be at peace, obey the law of the, of the land, and he's talking about the law of Nero. Paul went through a lot. How many times was he shipwrecked, you know? Well, if you go by uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 3. But there's, after that was written, there's a possibility that he went through one more. So it might be even four. Imprisonments. He received 39 lashes multiple times. I think at least five times. He was beaten with rods as punishment. He was stoned and taken outside the the community and left for dead. Now, the reason why I share that with you is that obviously, while Paul is one for obeying the law, there is a point in time where Paul says, there's something else going on, or these things wouldn't have happened to him. Paul's not putting a double standard, but what we have to do is to put the whole Scripture together to, to come up with our answer. There's so often, I, and I've read, it was interesting, I read some things about just Romans chapter 13 and how 
you know, Christians need to abide by the law, obey the law, no matter what it says. Da, 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 da. And, and yet we see Paul at times must not have obeyed the law or these things wouldn't have happened. Peter and John at some time must have not obeyed the law. All of the apostles must have at some time not obeyed the law or they wouldn't have been put on the island of Patmos or crucified or murdered or, or, or died by the sword or the, the arrows. And so there is a time for Christians to stand on what the Word of God says and take the consequences. By the way, I'm going to throw something at you, though, that you have to be aware of. You're going to be hard-pressed to find a Scripture that says they took, as they, uh, uh, they, 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 they took, uh, uh, I can't think of the word I want to think of, but they, they stood and took the punishment that the law offered without debate. Somebody said, wait a minute. Paul went to, it's because the law was broken by a Roman soldier. And he had the right to appeal to, to Caesar. And that was his right within the Roman law. So uh, you have to understand that that, that that was what he was using was the law of the land for his advantage. And that's nothing wrong with that. But the, the bottom line is, is that you, we, didn't, we didn't see these men uh, uh, go and, and, and uh, we didn't say, see great demonstrations against the death of these people, this type of thing. What we saw was that they, as they were accused, they said, yeah, you're right, this is what I did. Even John and Peter in Acts chapter 4 that I already read, they said, yeah, you, you, that's what we were doing. We healed this man in the name of Jesus. <laughs> and that's what we've been telling everybody. <laughs> that It was Jesus that healed this man. Jesus closed out his earthly ministry with what we call the Great Commission. We're to go where? To the whole world and do what? Preach the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, him crucified. And to say that to all who receive his grace, they shall be saved. That is a command from God that goes to all of us. We are all to live a lifestyle that reflects that in us. Now that's an obligation that comes to give unto God what is God's. And it stands very clearly, according to Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, above the law of the land at this point. Let me look at those again. In Acts chapter 4, I had read this morning, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Uh, and, and so Peter and John answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. In other words, how you feel about it. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We must proclaim Christ is what they were saying. In Acts chapter 5, they were arrested again. 
And verse 29 says, Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. There is a time where we stand and say, God's Word comes ahead of the things of man. If the consequences of that are severe, I'll endure those for the sake of Christ. But I am obligated to put the law of of God ahead of the law of man. So this comes down to today, for me, when is civil disobedience from a Christian group okay? Part of it has a lot to do with conscience and how you feel about something. But I I, I will have to say that the biggest uh, battle zone since I've been a Christian in my lifetime here in, in the United States has been abortion. Because abortion became legal before I became a Christian and it's been a battle zone the whole time. I had a person... Down in, in, in San Jose, explain it. They were doing a march, and they, it was pro life. And they had a permit and everything, but they said, once we go over here, we're going to sit down and, you know, make our statement. Some people would say, well, that's civil disobedience, and that's not allowed by Romans 13. I think you have a rough time justifying that when we get to Acts chapter 4 and 5. You've got to take the whole counsel of God as to how we look at something. But let's say that's not in your repertoire of things that you would do. The bottom line was that they were doing that. However, they said as soon as a policeman comes up and tags you, basically, to say you're under arrest, stand and go with him. Do not resist. And the idea was, he says, and you see some of the Christian demonstrations, the police had to lift them up and move them and this type of thing. His thought, and I thought this was interesting, he says, what if that guy lifting him up ends up blowing a disc? And you're the cause of that. Where's the Christ-likeness in that? Christ didn't make anybody, you know, when Christ suffered, he suffered it (laughs) himself but he willingly went. If we're going to stand for the things of Christ, we stand in such a way that we make an example of even the way we surrender. And so I thought that was an interesting way of looking at it, that even if if we go as far as to go into civil disobedience in a public demonstration, that even at that point, if we go as far as to say, I feel so strongly about this particular issue as a Christian, that I'm, I'm willing to be arrested for it, then do it in such a way that's dignified for everybody. And I thought that was amazing information coming from a guy who was organizing a, a, a march against abortion. So, I saw in that this idea that, yes, there's room for civil disobedience within the framework of the Christian body. But when you put it on the line, are you willing to pay the price that it might cost? 
And the answer needs to be yes. Chances are you're never going to be put in that position. But the reality is, where's your heart in it? Because there are people being put in that position in other parts of the world for just naming Christ. Our society has developed uh, what I call in the sense of tolerance an I'm okay, you're okay. Whatever you do, as long as it doesn't step on my rights, it's perfectly okay. And then we've turned around and modified what those rights are. We've definitely stepped away from, I believe, where we you know, had been uh, even 50 years ago in the sense of morality. And I think we as a church need to speak. And, and, and as a result, we need to call sin, sin. And I think these, this series that we have done these last few weeks talking about uh, sexual gender issues and pornography and other things and calling it what it is, sin, has been important. We need to see it as sin, know it as sin, and if we unwittingly or deliberately participate in it, that we are sinning. And that we've missed the mark and we need to go before God confess and repent. And so, I think the obligation of the church is not that we want to get under the pulpit and become that pounding the, 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 the constant thought of, you know, yeah, we live in a world of sin and, and, and all this stuff and, not, and, and miss some of the other things of the Scripture that are so important to, to grasp. But the reality is we have to see that we live in a fallen world that is becoming increasingly tolerant of what the Bible says it misses the mark of God and is sin. Although in the midst of this, and I, I, I clipped this out and, for, and, and, and unfortunately cleaned up my desk and didn't save the, 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 the banner for it, so I can't tell you who, who wrote this. <laughs> uh, I think it came from uh, the Legionnaire group, but uh, it says, when a believer finds that his Christian convictions are in conflict with someone's take on tolerance, he should immediately do the following things. Now, I was expecting to get some, some battle plans. Pray. Pray for wisdom and for courage. That was the first thing in his list. Second, examine his convictions to make sure that they are based on what the Bible actually says rather than personal preferences. Taking a stand against having a joint Hindu-Christian worship service is biblically supportable. In other words, taking a stand against that is biblically supportable. Taking a stand against serving ethnically diverse food at the church potluck is not. Well, we, we, and we laugh about something like that. But you'd be amazed at times what you find. He obviously went overboard intentionally. Commit himself to loving his enemies and doing good to them. In other words, before you stand up and be counted, start praying for those people and, what, and how that you might, what? Minister to them. Because we are to love our what? Enemies. 
those who stand against us and against Christ. Purpose is at heart to engage the conflict with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. What does this sound like? Fruit of the Spirit. If legal issues come into play, explore your rights under the law, which is perfectly acceptable to do. And again, we see Paul did that. But at the same point, be prepared to pay the price if that's what has to happen. Even in the midst of a conflict between godly convictions and secular tolerance, Christians must demonstrate Christ's love and righteousness exemplifying how truth and love can coexist in every situation. We should exhibit deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. comes out of James chapter 3. Our conduct should be such that those who speak maliciously against our good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. comes out of 1 Peter. In other words, act in such a way that when they come against you, all they can say was, He smothered us with niceness. <laughs> You know, in spite of the the fact that he didn't agree with this position. What does a Christian do when we're at 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 at, at odds with uh, a, a view uh, that the culture holds as acceptable and we look at as unacceptable? We teach. We go to the Word of God, we teach, we preach, if you will, uh, try to expose the things that we have become culturally tolerant to so that we don't become tolerant in the church to those same things. That hasn't been the case through the history of the church in the United States, at least, and in, in Western Europe. The proof of that is all of the spin-off denominations now where you can have a gay pastor. You can have, you know, different situations where uh, transgenders can can serve in leadership roles in churches. That'll never happen here, not because we are intolerant, meaning that that they don't have the freedom to live that lifestyle. I can't come against that, but our our government grants them that. But I have a biblical mandate that says I can't tolerate that in this context. And we need to develop a point where that's where we come to, where, where we can draw the line and make our stand. And it may not be the same place for every one of us. Please be gracious to people who don't make the stand exactly the same way you do. But at the same time, no, like this said, go to the Scripture and research it, study it, and pray about it so that you are well equipped to not just make a traditional statement of some kind that you've heard over and over again, but that you make something that is yours from the Holy Spirit and the Word of God in you. And the other part of that, again, is to coming back to that point and, and be willing to stand uh, if a judgment from the culture comes your way. And receive what comes from that.
That's not an easy place to be. And so uh, I just want to encourage you as you look at these things that we've been talking about, we're not preaching them just to say, okay, here's, here's what we believe, but here's what we believe and why we believe it. And then on top of that, are you willing to make a stand where, if and when and where God calls you to? And have your eyes and ears open. Pray that God will give you the ability to see the world around you and where He wants you to draw the line and when He wants you to draw the line. Because I believe there are places where He wants all of us to do that. So that we stand out and somebody will come up and say, why is it you believe the way you believe? Well, let me explain it to you. Peter says, be ready to give a defense. I ask the ushers to come forward to share communion this morning. And as we come to communion... I ask the worship team to come up and just that idea of preparing our hearts to receive from God all that He has blessed us with and recognize what God has done to bless us that we can share in this meal together in such a way that we know we have His grace.